Well, here we are again, a new year, new study. We're going to be starting tonight the Gospel of Mark, and we just want to take our time through it and see what the Lord has to say to us. Uh, and I'm sure that uh, there's a lot here that we're going to be able to glean from and learn from. Mark was a young man when Jesus Christ was crucified. Some believe in the neighborhood of 12 years old. Uh, there is some evidence that even from that young age, he had become a follower of Christ in a sense. Obviously, at being 12, he couldn't follow Jesus wherever he went. But he lived in Jerusalem, and uh, it could very well be that when Jesus came to Jerusalem to teach, Mark was uh, in the crowd. And uh, because, though, he didn't follow Jesus wherever he went, uh, some, you know, question, well, how did he write uh, a gospel? Well, uh, it's commonly believed that the accounts and the stories uh, in the Gospel of Mark were actually recorded by Mark as told by Peter. We know that Peter called Mark his son in the faith, much like Paul called Timothy his son in the faith. And even as Timothy accompanied Paul on many of his missionary journeys, Mark seems to have accompanied Peter many times on his journeys. And having done so, he no doubt heard the stories many times that Peter told about the ministry of Jesus. And so it's believed that what Mark did was he wrote down an accounting of the life of Christ as told by Peter, and he just simply penned it. The Gospel of Mark is sometimes tongue-in-cheek referred to the Gospel of Peter because, again, it does seem to be uh, much of Peter's firsthand accounts of the life and ministry of Christ as recorded then by Mark. Now... Mark's mother's name was Mary, and Mary was a wealthy woman, probably a widow. She lived in Jerusalem, and her house became a gathering place for the early church. In fact, when Herod arrested Peter, threw him into prison, and was going to kill him, remember how the angel of the Lord came and unlocked the prison doors, and Peter escaped, and the first place he went was to the house of Mary, and there in her house had gathered the disciples, and they were praying for Peter. Well, when Peter came and knocked on the gate, Rhoda, the maid, came and to the door, and she asked who it was, and, she, and Peter said, It's me, Simon Peter. Well, she got so excited, she didn't even open the door. She ran into the other room to tell the disciples that Peter was by the door. And these great men of faith gathered together to pray for Peter's release, said, You're crazy. You must, be, you must have seen a ghost. No way until finally Peter kept banging on the door, and he went and opened the door, and sure enough, it was him. They were all astonished, it says. But they were gathered there at Mary's house. Mary's house seems to have been the place in Jerusalem. And of course, it had to be rather large to accommodate, uh, you know, that many people. And it was a common meeting place for the early church. Now, Mary had a brother whose name was Barnabas. And we all know that Barnabas accompanied Paul on his first missionary journey. And as they went... Barnabas decided to take along John Mark. John was his Jewish name, and Mark was his surname. We call him Mark. His real name is John Mark. But Barnabas decided to take along Mark on this missionary journey. And when they got to Perga in Pamphylia, for some reason, Mark decided to go home. Uh, we don't know why. Maybe he got cold feet. Uh, maybe he was afraid. It was a very dangerous area they were traveling. It was uh, the Taurus Mountains and all, and it was uh, loaded with thieves and all kinds of, uh, you know, things that were dangerous and all. Maybe he got afraid. Maybe he was not prepared for the rigors and the sacrifices of the missionary life. We don't know. He just took off and left Barnabas and Paul there in Perga. 
Now, that really irritated Paul. Paul was the kind of guy, he was all business. And Mark was going to be the gopher. I mean, he was the guy who was going to run the errands and pick up the supplies. And, you know, I was an important member of the team. And all of a sudden, he's gone now. And so this really irritated Paul. So much so that some time later, when they decided to go on their second missionary journey, Barnabas wanted to take Mark along again. And Paul said, you got to be crazy, man. Are you kidding me? This kid, he left this last time. No way is he going again with us. I mean, he really put a damper on the work last time. And Barnabas said, man, I insist. I want him to come. And Paul stood his ground, and it, the contention grew so great among them that they actually split up. Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus, and Paul chose Silas and went north towards Antioch. And, you know, you could uh, debate the uh, benefits of that, uh, whether or not God was just trying to get two missionary teams as opposed to one. We don't know. But we know that years later, Mark seems to have redeemed himself with Paul. As he grew up and got more mature, uh, we find several places in the New Testament where Paul makes reference to Mark and how valuable and beloved he was to Paul as a laborer in the gospel. So somewhere along the line, Mark matured and he got back in Paul's good graces, probably because he was a guy who really did love the Lord and really did want to serve God. And Paul saw that maybe what happened earlier was just youthful, you know, whatever. And so later on, uh, he became quite fond of Mark. And not only did Mark accompany Peter many times on his journeys, but also Paul. In fact, it was Mark who came with Paul to Rome when Paul was in prison there. We know that Paul wrote the letter to the Colossians as one of the prison epistles from Rome. And there he mentions that Mark was with him. But Mark, it's believed also while he was in Rome, penned the Gospel of Mark sometime around A.D. 63. In fact, it's also believed that Mark wrote his Gospel to the Romans. This may be a witnessing tool, trying to reach out to them. Now, there are several reasons why we believe this. First of all, the Gospel of Mark is the shortest of the four Gospels. We know that. It's real brief and to the point. Mark doesn't waste any time with details. He wants to get right to the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And we know that the Romans were notoriously impatient people. Hey, they were the big power in the world, and they were a little bit haughty about it, and you know what? They were impatient. And so it could be Mark wanted to get in there and give them the gospel and, you know, before they lost interest in the story. Uh, also, whenever Mark talks about a Jewish custom, he always explains it, which would have been unnecessary if he was writing to a Jewish audience. For these and other reasons, uh, many believe that Mark was writing his gospel to the Romans. Now, Mark's gospel is known as a synoptic gospel. In fact, it's one of three. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are all called synoptic gospels. And the word synoptic simply means similar. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, if you read them in one sitting, you can see that they're very similar. That's why they call them the synoptic gospels. John's gospel is unique in its style and its content. John, obviously, his gospel deals with uh, things that the other three don't. Uh, and he leaves out things that they write about. So uh, John is unique in his style and in his content. But all four Gospels present a different aspect of Jesus Christ's ministry. All four of them are 
giving us a unique perspective of the life and ministry of Jesus, kind of like Jesus and Quadraphonic. They each have a different drum they want to beat, a different theme they want to emphasize. And it's important to understand that because people say, why four Gospels? Because, well, the Holy Spirit is very economic, first of all. He doesn't just talk to hear himself talk. He's got a reason for what he does and for what he has written down in, in the Word. And the idea is that there's four Gospels because each of them presents a different aspect of the ministry and the character of Jesus Christ. Matthew is a Levite. And the theme of his Gospel is to present Jesus Christ to the Jews as their Messiah. Now he's writing to the Jews. He makes no bones about it. He wants to present to them their king the line of the tribe of Judah. Now he knows if he's going to present Jesus as Messiah to the Jews, he's got to prove that Jesus Christ fulfilled the Messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. That's why in Matthew's gospel, more than any other gospel, you will read after Jesus said something or did something that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. Over and over again, Matthew wants to put the Old Testament messianic prophecies next to the words and the works of Jesus Christ to prove he fulfilled those prophecies and thus he was the Messiah. Now, if you're going to prove someone's a Jewish Messiah, you have to prove that they're Jewish, right? So Matthew gives us a genealogy and he traces it back to, through Solomon, through David, the royal line, and takes it back to Abraham, who was the father of the Jewish nation. That's as far as he goes. He's only concerned in proving that Jesus Christ was a descendant of Abraham, of David, of Solomon, and therefore has the legal right to be Messiah and King of Israel. Mark, on the other hand, the theme of his gospel is to present Jesus as the servant, and more specifically, the suffering servant. Mark wants to emphasize the servanthood of Jesus Christ. And Mark's is the only gospel that does not contain a genealogy because back then no one cared about the genealogy of a servant. It was unimportant, immaterial. So Mark's is the only gospel that does not have a genealogy. Also, that's why you won't find any long discourses or very many parables in the gospel of Mark. Because Mark is not concerned so much with the words of Christ, but the works of Christ. And this, of course, would be in keeping with presenting Jesus as a servant. It's not important what a servant says, it's important what he does. See? And Mark wants to emphasize the servanthood of Jesus Christ and the works that he did. Luke's theme of his gospel is to present Jesus as the Son of Man. Luke wants to emphasize the humanity of Jesus Christ. And therefore, Luke traces his genealogy all the way back to Adam, the first man, to prove that Jesus Christ was, in fact, a descendant of the human race. Yes, fully God, but fully man. And so Luke takes it all the way back to Adam, the first man. And in Luke's gospel, more than any other gospel, you will see the humanity of Christ emphasized. We see Jesus praying more in Luke's gospel than any other gospel emphasizing the fact that even though he was God, while he walked on the earth as a man, he needed to pray and be in contact with his Father. How much more so do we need to be in prayer and in contact with our Father? So Luke emphasizes the humanity of Christ, the Son of Man. John's emphasis is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. John wants to emphasize the deity of Christ. And John's gospel contains a genealogy of sorts. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. The Word, of course, is Jesus Christ. And the Word was God. 
The same was in the beginning with God. And that's interesting because in the Greek there is no definite article. John simply says, in beginning was the word. Not in the beginning, in beginning. And you say, well, what is that supposed to mean? Well, John was afraid if he, he put a definite article in front of the word beginning that we would ascribe some definite beginning. Yeah, okay, at the beginning of creation, Jesus was. Like Jehovah's Witnesses say. But John wanted you to know that in beginning, what beginning? doesn't matter. Pick one. As far back as you want to go, Jesus Christ already was. He was pre-existent. He was the, he's the eternal one, see? And that's his genealogy in a, in a sense. He has always been, always has lived, always will be. And so he is God, of course. And if you wanted to, if you're emphasizing the deity of Christ, you want to emphasize, of course, the fact that he was always there, okay? There was nobody before him. He had no descendants before him. He is the eternal God, see? So John emphasizes the deity of Christ. And so these are just some things that kind of help to kind of lay the foundation. As we approach Mark's gospel, we know that Mark is writing to the Romans, but obviously we can glean much from it, presenting Jesus as the servant, uh, how he came, how he stooped down to become a man, to serve us by dying for us and all. Uh, the ultimate act of a servant, to lay down his life for those that he loves. So Mark's gospel begins very simply, in the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He just plows right in, doesn't he? Now, right up front, Mark tells us that it's the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Christianity is not just a set of doctrinal beliefs or teachings. Christianity is a person. That's very important. That person is Christ. Unlike Buddhism, Confucianism, Mohammedism, these belief systems do not depend on their founders to be perpetuated. In other words, if you take Buddha out of the teachings of Buddhism, you can still be a Buddhist. I mean, he was the one who gave the teachings, but if somebody else would have stepped in in his place and gave the same teachings, it wouldn't have made any difference. The teachings are what's important in Buddhism and Confucianism and Mohammedism. It's the teachings. And the founders of the teachers that gave the teachings, yeah, it was important that they gave the teachings, but once they gave the teachings, as they passed off the scene, the belief system or the religion doesn't depend on them anymore. It's the teachings that's important. Not so with Christianity. You take Christ out of Christianity, you don't have Christianity anymore. Because Christianity isn't built on teachings as much as on a person. You see, it's all built on and inextricably linked to the person of Jesus Christ. He is the gospel. See, he didn't just come to give the good news. He is the good news. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus Christ is absolutely essential to Christianity. Without Christ, we don't have any faith. It's not the teachings that were important in and of themselves. It was the one who the teachings were built upon, Jesus Christ. That's a very important point. And at the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ is the truth that he is not just a good teacher, not just a moral man, great moral person. At the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ is the truth that he is the Son of God. And really, that's essential. Mark said, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's the heart of the gospel, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. 
That's why the Jews rejected Jesus 2,000 years ago, and that's why they continue to reject him today. They do not believe their Messiah is going to be the Son of God. In fact, that's what got Jesus into trouble with them from the very beginning. He went around claiming to be the Son of God. And they went around picking up stones, trying to kill him every time he did. And it wasn't something he did in one isolated spot or another. John 5.18, the Greek implies he constantly made himself equal with God by calling himself the Son of God. It was something he constantly did, you see. He was always talking about his equality with the Father, that he was the Son of God, God in human form. And this got him into a lot of trouble and wound up really being the thing, the reason why the Jews nailed him to the cross, the Pharisees and all. But it's also a real stumbling block for the Jews today because they do not believe their Messiah is going to be the Son of God. They believe, and they believe this today, their Messiah is going to be a man, just like Moses was a man. Moses prophesied way back in Deuteronomy 18, I believe, that the Lord was going to raise up another deliverer like unto me. And the Jews picked up on that and they said, oh, he's going to be a man like Moses. The emphasis was not like unto me as a man, like unto me as a deliverer. That was the emphasis. And Jesus Christ came to deliver his people from their bondage to sin, not their bondage to Rome, although when he comes again, he will free Israel and all mankind from their bondages. But the idea is that he came as the Son of God. And, and the Jews believe that their Messiah is going to be a man like Moses was a man, and that he is going to allow them or help them to rebuild their temple. Now that sends shivers up and down our spine because we know that's exactly what the, the Antichrist is going to do. And Israel is being, and the Jews are being prepared to receive the Antichrist. Uh, and Jesus said, I have come in my Father's name and me you did not receive. Another will come in his own name and him you will receive. Speaking of the Antichrist. But the belief in Jesus Christ as the Son of God is absolutely essential for salvation. In fact, John said, excuse me, Jesus said in John 8, 24, unless you believe that I am, he was talking to the Pharisees now, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. And you say, well, what does that mean? <laughs> unless you believe that I am. And some people, in fact, the King James, I think, tries to clarify it by putting the word he in there. Unless you believe that I am he, but the word is in italics, which means it's not there in the Greek. They just added it for clarity, but they messed it up, basically, by adding it. They should have left it alone, because when Moses stood before the burning bush and the Lord spoke to him and said, hey, you go to Pharaoh and you tell him to let my people go, and Moses said, Lord, you got to be kidding me. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and tell him to let your people go? I don't even know your name. And the Lord said, you tell him I am sent you. And that was the name of God, ego eimi in the Greek. And that's exactly what Jesus said. Unless you believe that ego eimi, that I am, the name of God he used, really, you will die in your sins. And so, you know, you, you can believe a lot about Jesus Christ and never get to heaven. There's a lot of people that believe a lot about Jesus. The Jehovah's Witnesses believe he is a mighty God, the Messiah, the creation of God. Well, it's all wrong. Okay? He is not just a mighty God. He is not a created being like Lucifer. He is Almighty God in human form. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory.
the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So Mark is kind of, in a roundabout, brief way, giving us a little doctrinal statement about Jesus Christ, much like John does, but John takes 18 verses to do what Mark does in one verse. Because Mark's, he's quick, he wants to get going, man. See, John lays out 18 verses in John chapter 1. The first 18 verses gives us a doctrinal statement of Jesus Christ because he wants us to know that he's presenting the Messiah, Jesus the Christ. But because even in John's day, there were all kinds of false messiahs running around and the Holy Spirit speaking through John knew there was coming many more, John wanted to nail down just what Messiah he was talking about. Because Paul said, be careful, there's coming those who will preach to you another Jesus in a different gospel, see, than the one that he had preached. And John knew the same thing, so he wanted to say, hey, the Jesus I'm talking about, he was in heaven with the Father for all eternity. He is God, was with God, and so on. All things were made by him. Nothing was made that was, uh, without him, nothing was made that was made. And so Mark just, like I said, just jumps right in. He doesn't waste any time giving details about Jesus' birth or early life, although that's not a waste of time, really. It's important stuff. But Mark wants to get right to the gospel, and uh, he wants to present it right off the bat. And uh, he says here, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, Make his paths straight. Of course, he was talking about who there? John the Baptist. So Mark wants to jump right into the gospel. He says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And what's the next thing he talks about? John the Baptist. So John the Baptist was really the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You say, well, in what way? Well, what was the message that God gave John to preach? Repentance. So repentance is really where the gospel begins. Now, John, we're going to see, was a unique character, uh, to say the least. He was a divinely appointed messenger sent by God with a divinely inspired message. John said in his gospel, chapter 1, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. Not John the Apostle, John the Baptist. And he wasn't a Baptist, he was a baptizer. Uh, <laughs> honestly, I, I've heard some people say the Baptists were the first denomination around. And I said, what are you talking about? How do you know that? Well, John the Baptist. I'm like, oh, brother. It's, no, he, it wasn't John the Baptist, he was John the Baptizer. Okay? But he was one sent by God to bear witness of the light, John said. He was not that light, uh, but was sent to bear witness of that light that all men through him might believe. That was the true light, Jesus Christ, who lights every man's way who comes into the world. John was sent by God to prepare the way for the public ministry of Jesus Christ. And he was a unique character. But before we look at the message uh, that God gave him, let's look a little bit at uh, the messenger. Because John, well, like I said, he's, he's unique. Uh, he was the second cousin, uh, a second cousin to Jesus, John's mother, Elizabeth, was a descendant of Aaron, as was his father, Zacharias. So both uh, Elizabeth and Zacharias, her husband, were uh, descendants of Aaron. And uh, Zacharias was a priest. In fact, it says that they were very godly, but they were 
well advanced in years. They were old and they had no children. She had been barren all these years. So one time when Zacharias was ministering, now there were so many priests in the family of Aaron in the time of Christ that they actually had to, uh, to be rotated. And even if you got rotated into serving there in Jerusalem by the temple, it didn't mean you were going to get a chance to go into the temple and burn incense before the Lord. That was like a once-in-a-lifetime shot, you know, and sometimes you didn't even get that. Well, it just so happened that the lot fell on Zacharias, and he was allowed then to go in and to burn the incense on the golden altar of incense in the tabernacle. And while he was there, it says, an angel appeared to him. And let's just read it right out of Luke's Gospel, chapter 1. And it says in verse 12, When Zacharias saw him, the angel, he was troubled and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink, he will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go, go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, that declaration by the angel Gabriel, uh, the last part was really taken in part from Malachi chapter 4 verses 5 and 6. The last thing that God said to close out the Old Testament, very easy to find, just go to the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, the last chapter, chapter 4, and the last two verses where God, this is the last promise God gave to Israel before he stopped speaking to them. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. And now Gabriel, talking about John and his birth, uses that prophecy and applies it to John the Baptist. And because of that, there are some who believe in reincarnation and who try to teach that, tell us that the Bible teaches the same thing. They will tell us, based on this, that John was really the reincarnation of Elijah's spirit. So, you know, the spirit that dwelt in Elijah was really reincarnated into John the Baptist. Now, that's wrong for a whole bunch of reasons. Let me just give you a few of the more, more important ones, okay? First of all, and I just throw this out because you're going to probably run across somebody that's going to try to hit you with this, that the Bible teaches reincarnation. And that up until 545 uh, A.D., uh, the Bible taught reincarnation, but then the church fathers came together and they uh, took it all out and all that, and they'll try to tell you that the, you know, the, Jesus originally taught reincarnation, the Bible did. That's all wrong. It's all wrong. What they're talking about is the uh, Second Council of Constantinople, which was uh, convened to anathematize or to uh, really call accursed the teachings of Origen, who did not believe in reincarnation. Origen talked against reincarnation, but he did believe in something the Mormons believe in, and that is the pre-existence of souls. The Mormons believe that there are souls of people that are waiting to have bodies, 
And that's why Mormons believe you, you have to have a lot of kids. Because if you don't, you're keeping somebody, a soul in heaven, from getting a body on the earth. And Origen was into that. And so that's what they point to, that that whole council was convened to expunge uh, reincarnation out of the Bible. That is not true. It was convened to anathematize the teachings of Origen, really. But the Bible does not teach reincarnation. It never has. Uh, in fact, not only does it not teach it, it refutes it. Remember the story Jesus told in Luke 16 about the wealthy man and Lazarus and how the wealthy man died and Lazarus was a diseased beggar who was laid at the wealthy man's gate and wanted to just eat some of the crumbs that fell from his table. And in time, Lazarus died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom where he was comforted. And then in time, the rich man died and he was carried off into the torment side of Hades, this place in the center of the earth which is divided. These two compartments are divided by a great chasm and uh, you know you know the story and uh, the wealthy man wanted Father Abraham to let Lazarus come over and dip his finger in water and touch it to his tongue because he was being tormented in these flames and Father Abraham said son remember when you were living you had the good and Lazarus had the evil now he is comforted and you are tormented and besides that we can't come to you and you can't come to us because of this great chasm that separates us well Jesus is right there teaching that there is a resting place for those who have lived. They don't get just recycled. They don't just come back again and try all over. The rich man, he chose not to believe in God's promises and the Messiah and all, and he was in Hades in the torment side waiting judgment. Lazarus was in Abraham's bosom being comforted because obviously, though he was poor and sick, he had come to believe in the Messiah. And because of his faith, he was saved. Also in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, it says that it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes the judgment. And in John chapter 5, Jesus talks about those who die, and someday all those who are in the grave are going to hear the voice of the Son of Man, are going to come forth. Those that have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation or eternal punishment. All throughout the Bible, the Bible does not ever teach reincarnation. It always teaches resurrection. And depending on what you do here in this life, the decision you make to either accept or reject Christ and the works that follow each decision will be what determines if you get into heaven or if you don't and how you're rewarded once you get into heaven and how you're punished if you are in hell. So the Bible is, doesn't anywhere teach reincarnation. Always resurrection. And we have but one shot in life to make a decision for Christ, and so on. Secondly, I would like to think John the Baptist knew who he was, right? I mean, in John's gospel, when he was out there baptizing in the wilderness of Judea, the, um, the Jews sent scribes and Pharisees out to see this character out there in the wilderness, you know, and with all these crowds going out to see him, and they said to him point blank, are you the Christ? He said, no. Well, are you Elijah? No. Are you that prophet? He said, no, I'm not. Well, then who are you? He said, I'm of the voice of one crying in the wilderness, making straight the way of the Lord. See, John said, no, I'm not Elijah. He didn't claim to be Elijah. And I think the topper is that after John was beheaded, Jesus took his disciples up to the Mount of Transfiguration, remember? And he took Peter, James, and John to the top. And there they saw Moses and who? Elijah appeared to Christ. 
Now, this was after John was beheaded. If John was the reincarnation of Elijah, then why wouldn't it have been Moses and, Eli and John? Not Moses and Elijah, you see. John had already been born, already had died. Yet it was Moses and Elijah telling us that they were two separate and distinct people. Uh, the Holy Spirit is so neat in foreseeing these doctrinal th issues that we have to come to terms with and, you know, deal with. And he always puts little things in the Word that will we can just pull right out and, and just blow apart these arguments. One of my favorites is when Jesus Christ resurrected and then he was about to ascend into heaven, and he did, after he spent 40 days with them, talking about the kingdom and all, Acts chapter 1. And all of a sudden he's done talking, the 40 days are up, he just gets, he just ascends straight into heaven, up through the clouds. And the disciples are all looking up with their mouths open, stirring up into heaven, and two angels appear to him and said, hey guys, you know, men of Galilee, why are you standing there with your mouth open? Why are you standing there gazing up into heaven? This same, what? Not Christ. He didn't say this same Christ. If he had, they could have said, well, sure, the Christ spirit. Reincarnated into Jesus, Muhammad, Buddha, a number of other teachers. No, the Holy Spirit foresaw that and said, this same Jesus who you saw ascend will come back in like manner. See, the Holy Spirit foresaw these things and puts them there. If we'll only take the time to dig them out, He gives us plenty of, uh, of ammunition to use against those who come with the false doctrine. Now, I know some would say, but wait a minute. What about what Jesus said to His men when they were coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration? As they were coming down, the disciples said, Well, Lord, why do the scribes say that Elijah is going to come first? And Jesus said, Elijah is going to come first and put all things in order. And if you would have received it, he had, Elijah has already come. And the disciples, it says there, the disciples realized he was talking about John the Baptist. So was Jesus Christ calling John Elijah? He was calling John Elijah the same way Gabriel did, basically. He was saying, Gabriel said, look, you're going to have a son, Zacharias, and he will go forth in the spirit and power of Elijah. His ministry will be to call people to repentance, even as Elijah's was, to call people to repentance, to prepare their hearts to get right with God. John the Baptist was a foreshadowing, really, a type of the coming of Elijah because Jesus came the first time. He needed a forerunner. John the Baptist was a type of Elijah. Jesus is going to come again. And Elijah is going to come before him. I believe Elijah is going to be one of the two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11. So you can read that, how that Moses and Elijah, I think it's Moses and Elijah, come back to the earth for three and a half years to preach the kingdom and all, repentance, and uh, are persecuted and finally killed, and are going to be coming before the Lord returns uh, the second time. But John gotten off the track a little bit. John <laughs> John was really, the coming of John marked officially the beginning of the New Testament era. Luke 16, 16 says, the law and the prophets, Old Testament, law and the prophets were until John. John marked officially the beginning of the New Testament era, even though his ministry was transitional, basically. Um, John really was the bridge that help to close out the Old Testament period and usher in the New Testament period. John was kind of like the bridge, the transition from the old to the new. And then at one point even he began to fade out as 
people began to go more to Jesus and his disciples. And they came to John and said, aren't you jealous? And he said, no, I told you I wasn't uh, the Messiah. I'm only, uh, I'm only the uh, friend of the bridegroom. You know, he must increase, I must decrease. So even John began then to pull back and to fade away as the New Testament uh, era came into fruition, became a, a, a reality. Uh, but John was the bridge that kind of helped close out the old and usher in the new. And uh, he was really the first New Testament prophet. He came dressed like a prophet. In fact, verse, verse 6 says, Now John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. Uh, he came dressed like a prophet. In fact, Elijah wore a similar costume. In fact, in those days, in the Old Testament, prophets would wear a very rough, kind of uh, almost very uncomfortable, scratchy sackcloth garment. Uh, why? Well, sackcloth was a, a symbol of mourning. You know, when you were mourning, you'd put on sackcloth and put ashes on your head. It was a symbol that you were mourning. And most of the prophets in Israel didn't have much to be happy about because they were mostly calling the nation back to God because they had gotten into apostasy and idolatry. And so they were always mourning as they were preaching repentance because if you don't repent, God's going to bring judgment. And so a prophet just came to be one who dressed very, in a very rough garment. Also, it signified he had foregone any kind of earthly comforts to be a servant of God and to live not in luxury, but to live, you know, for God in whatever kind of uh, sacrifice that that meant. Uh, John was out in the wilderness. He ate locusts and wild honey. He dressed like a prophet. He lived like a prophet in a sense. Uh, he was a very, had a very simple diet. Again, speaking of the fact that he was not here to enjoy life in all its delicacies and things like that. He was here on a mission, see? And he was in the wilderness of Judea. Uh, when we were in Jericho, we saw the area that John was ministering. It's about 20 miles from Jerusalem, and 20 miles back then on foot over rough terrain was no party. 20 miles one way. We saw the old Jericho road that Jesus and the others walked uh, back then. Of course, they've built alongside of it and sometimes right through a mountain because they've cleared it away a new road for the buses and all but you saw back then of course they had to go around the mountains you know and it was quite it might have it was 20 miles by bus it might have been 30 miles by the time you wander around all those mountains and all uh, to get down to Jericho and here was John out in the Judean wilderness he wasn't in Jerusalem you think you want to have a ministry right you go where the people are I mean church growth today tells us look you want to have a big church you got to be accessible you got to be visible. You got to be where the people are. Just tells me when the Spirit of God is working in people's hearts, they'll go where the Word is, no matter where it is. They got to travel 30 miles, rough terrain. When people are being touched by the Holy Spirit and they're beginning to hunger and thirst for the Word of God and for truth, man, there is no distance too great. They'll crawl on their knees if they have to to get to where the Word of God is being proclaimed. And that's what we have to keep in mind, you know? We sit down and we figure out all these ways by which we can build a church. Uh, Jesus said, I'll build my church. You just worry about being faithful to what I told you to do. Proclaim my truth faithfully and let me worry about building my church, okay? I'm not saying we should be inaccessible necessarily. It's just interesting to me that John was way out by the Jordan River, uh, Bethabara, out by the Judean wilderness, and droves of people were coming out to hear what he had to say. Obviously, God was really working through him, and the Spirit was really working on people's hearts. And John's message was very simple. Repentance. Very simple message. 
His whole ministry was to prepare the hearts of the people to receive their Messiah who was coming not far behind him. He was a herald. In fact, in those days, every king, and Jesus was a king, every king had a herald. And what would happen was, if a king was going to travel to one part of his kingdom, the day before, they would dispatch a herald. And he would come before the king, and he would prepare the way. He'd say, look, the king's coming tomorrow. Get these garbage cans picked up. Paint that fence. Let's get this grass cut. You know, the king's coming, and we want everything to look nice. Well, John basically did the same thing, only he wasn't dealing with, with fences and lawns and things. He, would, he was dealing with people's hearts. And he came really to prepare people's hearts to receive the king. Look, the Messiah's coming. You're not living properly. You're not living rightly. You need to, you're sinners. You need to repent. Boy, that would be something the church growth ex experts would not advocate as a way to build a church. A lot of people would say, oh, that's so negative. Good heavens, what a negative message. How could you ever expect to build a church with a negative message like that? Well, again, when the Spirit of God is working in people's hearts, uh, there are, they're only too aware of their sinfulness. And John was not preaching to what they wanted to hear, but what they needed to hear. And the Spirit of God was really bearing witness to their heart. They needed to hear this, and they needed to respond. And they came by the hundreds and probably by the thousands, so much so that he, be, he got the attention of the Jewish leadership, and they even sent guys out to find out who this guy was. This was no little trickle. Obviously, he made quite an impact on the city of Jerusalem because God was with him. God was using him. He was preparing the way of the Lord. In fact, this comes out of Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. You know in Isaiah chapter 40, where that was quoted out of, as John fulfilling that, the word Lord there is all capital letters. It's the word Jehovah in Hebrew. Now that's a good one to lay in your Jehovah's Witness friends. Take him to Isaiah 40, verse 3. Ask him to read it and say, well, what is that? who is that talking about? John the Baptist, obviously. And who, did, who was John preparing the way for? Jesus Christ. Well, then how come it says here, prepare the way for Jehovah? Is Jesus Jehovah? Try that one on him. <laughs> so the messenger. Kind of a strange character, but one thing we can say about John was he was focused, wasn't he? He was focused. I, I, I respect him for that. He wasn't distracted with a lot of things. He had a mission to fulfill, a ministry to perform, a message to give, and he was focused. He had one string in his guitar, and he strummed it constantly. And the message was, really, what was it? Repentance. Repent. He says here in verse 4, John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sin. Matthew, I think, gives it a little more clearly in Matthew chapter 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Mark opens up his gospel by saying the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The very next thing he talks about is John the Baptist. Therefore, I, as I said earlier, I believe John the Baptist is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In what way? In the fact that he preached repentance, and therefore repentance is always where the gospel begins. Nobody can get saved until they first repent of their sins. Nobody can be saved without repentance. There's just no way around it. Repentance is always the beginning of the gospel. It's always where the gospel starts. 
repent. The word there in the Greek is metanoia. It comes from two different Greek words. Meta, which means to have a change. Okay, metamorphosis, to change. And noia means the mind. Metanoia uh, means to change your mind. And, of course, all repentance starts in the mind or in the heart, where you recognize you're going in the wrong direction. Hey, I'm moving away from God. I'm not moving toward Him. I'm moving away from God. So you realize that, and you in your heart want to do an about-face and change, come back the other way. That's repentance. Of course, it always then affects actions, but the Greek term literally talks about having a change of mind. See? Because it all starts there in the heart, in the mind. You know, that's where repentance begins. Before it ever gets worked out into actions, and of course, there's no way you can ever change unless you first open your heart to Christ. So you realize you're a sinner. You realize your life is messed up. You realize you're going in the wrong direction. So you get on your knees and say, Lord, I realize I'm a sinner. I'm, I'm moving away from you. I want to stop moving away from you. I want to move towards you. Please come into my heart. Be my Savior. And at that instant, Jesus moves in, gives the Holy Spirit. And now you have the power to make the changes outwardly that God has begun to do in your heart. See, But repentance is such an important thing. The whole ministry of John was to proclaim or to preach repentance. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul talks about two kinds of sorrow. One is a sorrow that's godly and leads to repentance. And one is a sorrow that's worldly and just leads to death. There's a lot of people that have regret or remorse over the consequences of their sins. That's not the same as repentance. We're going to be getting into the book of Judges soon. The children of Israel were constantly sinning and bringing consequences into their life, difficult consequences. They would then cry out to God, and He would hear them, and He would deliver them from their enemies, and they would go right back and do the same things all over again. Because it wasn't true repentance, it was remorse, it was regret. They were sorry for the consequences of their actions, but they weren't sorry for the actions. They wanted to have their cake and eat it too, basically. They wanted to continue living in sin. They just didn't want the consequences attached to it. There's a lot of people like that. They're sorry because of what their sin has brought into their life, but they're not repentant. And see, that's, that's worldly sorrow. That doesn't do anything. It just leads to death. You'll die in your sins with that kind of sorrow. But godly sorrow leads to repentance, which brings about a change. See, And that's how you know you've really repented because you begin to see a change. But repentance was the first word out of John the Baptist's mouth. It was the first word out of Jesus' mouth. Here in Mark chapter 15, he says, repent. Other places, it's even more clear. Matthew says, Jesus went about preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repentance was the first word out of Jesus' mouth. It was the first things the disciples said, the 12 disciples in Mark chapter 6, when they were gathered by Jesus and sent out, the 12 were sent out to preach. And it says they went out preaching repentance from sins. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repentance was the first thing that Peter said after he had explained the phenomenon on the day of Pentecost tongues and how that Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of the prophecies of David, how that God said he wouldn't leave his Holy One, uh, wouldn't allow his Holy One to see corruption, that Jesus was, a, was resurrected and all. And after he preached this sermon, they said, men and brethren, what must we do? And the very first thing he said was, repent, repent. That's the beginning of the gospel. It was also the very first thing out of Paul's mouth 
we don't know that until later on in chapter Acts chapter 27 when he's before Agrippa and he's recounting his ministry and how he got started. He said, from the time I came to Christ, from that time I went everywhere preaching repentance from dead works. And finally, remember in the book of Revelation, how that the last thing that Jesus said to the churches, he said to the church of Laodicea, but it applies to all the churches really. He said, look, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come into him and sup with him and he with me. And so often we quote that verse to, to people that we're witnessing to. They say, well, how do I get saved? Jesus said, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come into him and dine with him and he with me. But if you look just before verse 20 where Jesus said that, before verse 20 was a space, before the space was a period, and before the period was the word repent. Be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, you see. Again, repentance is what opens the door. It's what opens the door of your heart to Jesus Christ. Very important. Today, in the church of Jesus Christ, I think that uh, we find many churches trying to preach the gospel without repentance. We find a lot of churches trying to, uh, to preach the good news without uh, telling people that they need to repent from their sins. So many churches are trying to entice people into the kingdom with all kinds of promises that will appeal to their flesh. Like, you know, you come to Christ and he promises you success, prosperity, health, and so on, wealth. They try to entice people into the kingdom by appealing to their flesh. No, no mention of repentance. Other times I think churches try to entertain people into the kingdom, you know. And that's the mentality in some churches. In fact, a lot of the church growth books kind of advocate this, kind of, Give people what they want. Get them in the doors any way you can. Entertain them. Do things that are kind of unusual, spectacular, uh, uh, you know, and, and get them in the doors. And then when they're not looking, kind of slip the gospel in. Hey, nowhere did Jesus, Paul, Peter, any of the disciples, the Lord himself, ever come in through the back door with the gospel. They were always very forthright and straightforward in presenting the gospel. It was always, look, here it is. You want it, it's yours, but you've got to repent. They didn't beat around the bush. They didn't try to, to uh, soften the message to make it more appealing to people, uh, to their ears, or to sugarcoat it. It's like, here, repent, and then receive the good news. But it's all hooked together, you see. And as Mark said here in verse 4, it says, John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Repentance is essential for the remission of sins, but by itself it's not going to bring salvation because it has to be coupled with faith. See, repentance is turning away from sin. But when you turn away from something, you're turning towards something else. And that's where faith comes in. You're turning away from sins, that's repentance. You're turning towards, though, Jesus Christ, that's faith. Really, repentance and faith are flip sides of the same coin. They're both the work of the Holy Spirit coupled together, really, if there's true repentance, it means the Spirit is working. And the Spirit of God, if He's working, isn't going to leave you in limbo there. He'll bring you from repentance right over to faith. You can't really separate the two. And if you have real faith in Christ, obviously there's already been repentance. He goes on to say here, Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to Him and were all baptized by Him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. And talks about John his outfit and all. In verse 7 it says, And he preached, saying, There comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. I indeed baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. 
So he not only preaches repentance for the remission of sins, he also preaches that, look, you also need to repent, but then there's one coming after me, and him you need to put your faith in is basically what he is saying. The word baptism, here it says that John came baptizing in the wilderness. The word baptism in the Greek means to immerse, and really it was used of a garment, basically, that was dyed. If you had a um, yellow garment and wanted to make it uh, green or something, you would take it to the dyers and he would immerse it in the dye. He would baptize it and it would change its character in a sense. It would make it something different than what it once was. John came baptizing with water, preaching repentance. His was a ministry of preparation. Uh, John's ministry didn't save anybody. Only the Lamb of God can take away the sins of the world. Remember when Jesus came to John uh, in John chapter 1 and John said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John wasn't taking away any sin. He was just making people aware of the fact they were sinners and getting them to a place where their hearts were prepared to receive the one who could cleanse them of their sins. John's baptism didn't do anything to anybody, spiritually speaking. Water baptism is only a symbol. It's an outward ritual that we do to signify an inward spiritual truth. And that is that the blood of Christ has cleansed me of my sins. He has made me a new creation. And I'm going to symbolize that by allowing myself to be dipped in water. And the water washes off the dirt of the flesh. And in a sense, I'm immersed. And that's what we try to do, immerse people, which signifies death and burial. And when they come up, it signifies resurrection. They're not the same person that they once were. They've been baptized. They've been changed. Uh, they're a new creation now. But water baptism just symbolizes that. It can't do anything to bring that about. Only the blood of Christ can make you a new creation. And so it's important to realize that. 1 Peter 3.21, Peter says, Now baptism saves us. But not the baptism that washes a little dirt off of the flesh. Not water baptism. The kind of baptism that happens when you believe in the resurrection of Christ and are baptized into the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit. See, that's the kind of baptism that saves us. Faith is what he's saying. Faith, which brings about the new birth. But Peter says water baptism never saved anybody. And there are those who will tell you, you've got to be baptized to be saved. You know, water baptism is essential for salvation. No, it isn't. Absolutely not. The thief that hung on the cross next to Peter Next to Jesus, I'm sorry. Um, maybe there was one who hung next to Peter. I don't know. But uh, one of them repented, remember? And Jesus said to him, This day you'll be with me in paradise. Never took him down to the river. Never baptized him. We know that Paul was sent by God. And Paul was a man who desperately wanted to see people saved. But when he wrote to the Corinthians in chapter 1, verse 12, he said, Now I say this, that each of you says... Uh, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I had baptized in my own name. Yes, I also baptized the household of, of Stephanus. Besides, I do not know whether I baptized any other, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Now, if baptism was essential an essential part of the gospel, Paul would never have said that. Paul would have said, look, I've come to save people, and I tell you what, when I get them, when they accept Christ, I run them right down to the river. 
And make sure you do that too. He said, no. He said, look, I, I've been called to baptize. I've been called to preach the gospel. If water baptism was essential for salvation, you better believe Paul the apostle would have been running them down there to the river or wherever he could find some water and getting them dipped in there because that would, but see, it's not. It's just a, a symbol. And people get hung up on rituals. Now, they say, well, wait a minute now. It says here that John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And see, people say, look, baptism is essential for the remission of sins. In the Greek, the preposition is ace, and it doesn't necessarily mean for. It could mean unto or because of. And really, in this sense, it means unto. This was a, a baptism of repentance unto or leading to the forgiveness of sins, which would, of course, happen when they accepted Christ. Remember in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, when they said, Men and brethren, what must we do? Peter said, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized for the remission of sins. They say, Look, right there. No, the Greek, it should be translated because of the remission of sins. Bapti water baptism is not essential for the remission of sins. It just... It's a, a public declaration of what Christ has done, see? I'm making a public statement that from this day forward, I'm going to live a new life. I'm a new creation. I'm going to live like it, see? Jesus has washed me of my sins. I'm going to live that way, like a person who is holy. Well, we'll leave it at that. I wanted to cover one other thing, but I think we can leave it till next week. Verse 8, Indeed, I baptize you with water. We've just dealt with that. But he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, and Matthew says, and with fire. There are different baptisms, and we'll talk about it just briefly, because it does get into the ministry of Christ, how that after he was baptized in water, he was baptized in the Spirit, or with the Spirit, which was absolutely essential before he began his public ministry. We're going to talk about that briefly, because we spent a lot of time on that in our Holy Spirit study, but uh, it does... It is very important just to understand the principle as we you know, study out of Mark's gospel. And then we'll just begin to move straight through. So, as you can see, we are taking our time. We've been true to our word. We're not rushing things. And that's what this study is going to be all about. Just taking our time, digging in deep, kind of pulling all these things out, and hopingly getting more and more built up in the word and more and more equipped to be able to stand up and speak the truth and defend the truth. Be ready to give everyone a, a reason uh, who asks you, know, give everyone a defense for the, uh, who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. See, be ready to give everyone a defense. Uh, and it's our faith is intelligent. We should uh, be studying to be able to intelligently defend the faith. So hopefully through this study we'll be able to do that. Let's pray. Father, Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you that uh, it is so incredible, so intricate, so uh, it just foresees every problem we could uh, come across, every argument, and just places uh, there for us the things that we need to just silence the critics, Lord. We just thank you for that, and thank you that it also feeds our spirits that we might be able to walk in the spirit. We just thank you, Lord, that you came. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you stooped down to take the form of a servant and to die, that we might live. We thank you, Lord. And now we ask you to help us to walk in your footsteps, that we also might be servants. For the greatest among us, you said, would be a servant to all. 
So help us, Lord, not to take the chief seats, but the least seats, that we might always be pushing others ahead of ourselves, that we might be last, that we would humble ourselves, that you might exalt us. For we ask it now, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.